Hello, everyone. I'm Franco Terrazano, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And of course, you're listening to the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast, where we're always pushing for lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. Now, today we're going to be talking about online censorship, government accountability, and I'm joined by a few awesome guests. I'm, I'm here, of course, with my friend and colleague in Toronto, Jay Goldberg. He is our Ontario director and spokesperson. He knows a lot about this issue, but we also have perhaps the best person joining us to have this conversation today in Canada. We're joined by Dr. Michael Geis. He is a law professor at the University of Ottawa and is seen as one of the foremost experts in the countries on legal issues surrounding the internet. And I also have to note that Dr. Geis was an advisor. He was very helpful on the report that we published on some of the dangers of Bill C-11. So Professor Geis, thanks so much for, for coming on today. Oh, pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's get right into it, shall we? Uh, Dr. Geis, in a nutshell, what is Bill C-11 and why should Canadians be concerned about this? Sure. That's a good place to start. And, and I mean, there's there's what Bill C-11 started life as, actually originally as Bill C-10 and what it turned into. It started life as what I think some would say is a decently reasonable proposition that large streaming services like Netflix and Disney and some others uh, might be might be treated as part of the broader Canadian broadcast system uh, required to meet certain regulatory requirements and make contributions. I think there's an open debate about the, the need for legislation in that regard. Those companies are some of the biggest investors already in Canada, but you can certainly it's at least a debatable issue. Along the way, though, the legislation expanded in a way that uh, initially the government said it wouldn't, and uh, but it's where where it's, it is where it is, and that is that it expanded to include user content as well. And if we go back just a little bit, there was initially Bill C-10, which actually directly excluded user content. The government then made the move to remove an exception that actually put it back on the table. That bill died. They brought back this bill. It gets complicated. But bottom line is when they brought this new bill back, Bill C-11, they said, we fixed the problem. We heard the concerns that people had about overstepping with respect to regulating user content. Yet the reality is, once you look at the fine print, once you listen to many of the experts that appeared before the committee, I think it is when you listen even to the head of the CRTC, I think at this stage it is undeniable but that there is some user content um, and not just some large amounts of user content. Um, uh, virtually any TikTok video, for example, that includes music gets captured, all of which is subject to certain regulatory powers of the CRTC. Um, Jay, can you just jump in there and really bring it home for our supporters on why they should be concerned about this? Absolutely. So Dr. Geis started to talk about issues of discoverability uh, and user-generated content. So what he's talking about in part uh, is about what we see on the internet as well. And so the major concern that we have is that the legislation is empowering the CRTC to decide what turns up first in your streaming feeds and your news feeds online. Now, they're going to do that right now based on a Canadian standard. So if something's considered to be Canadian and that's open to interpretation, they'll push that. But what that means is that other content will become low in your list, buried, and you might not even see it. And we're concerned at the Taxpayers Federation, at least on my part, that in the future, this could be used to expand government power that could be used to filter your content and prioritize certain content based on other priorities other than just Canadians. So that's a huge concern. Professor, 
at least from the outside, I hear a lot of people arguing that the bill might be needed uh, to help promote on, on the Canadian content uh, producers. So I want to know from you, do you think that the bill in its current form is even needed to achieve stated objectives? Yeah, well, I mean, listen, there are a number of objectives on the issue of discoverability. I think that I think we should be distinguishing between two kinds of services, really. And that's frankly the way that the European Union does it. And it's it it's distressing that there's a there's a ready example that was well studied that Canada could have relied upon, but chose not to. And in Europe, they adopt an approach where they distinguish between what are known as curated services and non-curated services. And so a curated service would be a service, let's say, like Netflix, that that obviously decides what appears on the platform. Now it's in that sense, it's arguably more similar to a broadcaster than, say, is a, a YouTube or an Instagram or a TikTok, where the, the content that appears there is really just a function of whatever the, uh, the users themselves happen to be posting online. With respect to your question, do we need discoverability rules when it comes to the curated services, the Netflixes of the world? I must admit, I'm not convinced that there is a problem in need of solving. Um, if you take a look, for example, at the service like Netflix, all you have to do is type in Canada into the search bar and you can find Canadian content. Could they be doing more to promote the Canadian content that they have on the service? They would respond that they're promoting to individual users what those individual users are most likely to be interested in. Um, I don't know that the world would fall apart, though, if um, if there was some sort of requirement that there had to be a Canadian bar of Canadian content on Netflix. Where the problem really lies, though, is in taking this concept and applying it onto the non-curated services where it is user content. Because in that context, once you start saying you want YouTubes or TikToks or Instagrams to engage in that kind of practice, you run into a whole host of problems where, in fact, the approach can be harmful. If it isn't harmful in a Netflix context, it might be immaterial, but it's not harmful. In a YouTube context, it can create real harms to Canadian creators who may find their content demoted on a global basis and even difficult to identify whether they qualify on a domestic basis. Absolutely. You know, uh, Jay, let me just jump in right now because I, I tested this out before. One of my favorite shows, uh, to no one's surprise, is the Trailer Park Boys. Uh, it took me about a minute to get off the computer, go to the TV, and find the Trailer Park Boys, press play, and start watching an episode on Netflix. So I was able to find that quite easily. But Jay, why don't you expand on this a little bit? Uh, what do you think? Do you think this bill is needed? Well, no, we don't. And But I think something that Dr. Geist mentions, uh, certainly we talked about in the report, uh, is the profitability of the industry. The government is really trying to paint this picture of Canadian content creators, uh, you know, they're, that they're suffering, that in some way money's being lost in the industry. Before an investment in Canadian film and television is hitting record highs. In 2020, I believe it was over $9 billion. So one of the arguments the government made from the beginning is that this was needed to promote Canadian content uh, because the industry was somehow in trouble, whereas the reality is uh, that it's not, that they're making a record amount of money. And so, you know, that pokes a really big hole in one of the government's core arguments. You know, I want to get back to this report because, I mean, I love this report. And one of my favorite things about the report is that it shows that this isn't just a chalkboard issue, that this can really impact Canadians on their day-to-day -day, uh, lives. And we paint four different pictures on how Bill C-11 
could impact Canadians. So Jay, can you take us through some of the case studies here? Sure. And I can ask Dr. Geist uh, maybe to expand on some of them. So obviously, you know, we wrote these case studies or I wrote these case studies um, random by Dr. Geist. These are, you know, hypothetical scenarios under Bill C-11 about what could potentially happen. So the first case study we're looking at is, is a couple who are sitting down. They're trying to figure out what to watch on TV. As any of us who are married or in relationships know, sometimes that can be quite a struggle. Uh, so the example that we put on the first uh, case study uh, is a married couple with the wife interested in watching The Handmaid's Tale, which, of course, uh, is based on Margaret Atwood's book, famous Canadian author. Uh, and what we were suggesting there is it might be difficult to find that because based on the outdated discoverability rules uh, that we have here in Canada, that is not considered to be Canadian content for very specific reasons that Dr. Geist can speak to, uh, production, where it's produced, who's involved, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then we move on to the husband who's interested in watching a Maple Leafs documentary about their uh, Stanley Cup run a couple of years ago. Again, that's considered not to be Canadian content. And, you know, as they keep going through and through, they're noticing content like Gotta Love Trump, uh, which is considered to be Canadian content simply because uh, some production team members uh, were Canadian. So uh, what we paint a picture of here is that actually, in some cases, what we should be considering to be Canadian content is not, and it could be harder to see. So, Dr. Geist, I wonder if you could just expand on discoverability. You certainly talked about this God Love Trump thing before. Um, you know, how updated is it? And should we be really looking to give further powers to the CRTC if we're this outdated on figuring out what even is Canadian? Yeah, I think it's a, this is an important issue worth discussing. And frankly, it's one of those issues where there is, I think, general agreement that the system as it currently stands now is in desperate need of updating. And you'll get like pretty widespread agreement on that, really from even people who are supportive of the bill will argue that or acknowledge that there is a need to address the issue. I guess it's a little bit of question of timing. Do you need to you know, address the issue before you start making dramatic changes to the system or can you make the dramatic changes and then at the same time try to come up with some of the CanCon related changes? But at its heart, part of the problem is that CanCon wants to do any number of different things or CanCon rules want to do any number of different things. And it's not uh, always clear whether or not the, any of those are particularly effective right now. And when you get those different policy objectives, uh, there's a tendency for the whole thing to become a bit of a uh, of an ineffective process, I think it's fair to say. And so part of it is the so-called the desire to so-called tell Canadian stories. That's that's I think how people most often identify Canadian content rules. And yet the reality, as you highlight, is that content that most would consider to be Canadian content. Um, Trailer Park Boys is an example. You said that you watched it on Netflix. In fact, the, some of the new Trailer Park Boys that was completed uh, and commissioned by Netflix is not treated as Canadian content, mm. even though you might think it would be. Um, wow. Why? Because Netflix is the owner. So it's actually not Canadian content. The The Amazon documentary on the on the Leafs so-called run, that would be a very short documentary <laughs> called uh, a Leafs run, um, is similarly not considered Canadian content. Once again, because it's it's foreign owned in this case by Amazon. So, you know, that, that it highlights that things that sound like Canadian stories oftentimes aren't CanCon. The reason for that is that we have another policy as part of this. That, and that is that we want to ensure that Canadians own these works. And so 
On the one hand, you know, companies like Netflix are accused of not investing in Canadian content. The reality is, is a lot more complicated than that. They actually do invest in a lot of productions that by virtually any measure would qualify as Canadian content, but for the fact that Netflix itself actually owns the work. They commission, they decide they want to own and have that exclusivity uh, on a global basis. Our policy set, tries to say, well, that shouldn't count as Canadian content. Why? Because we want Canadians to own this. So that raises some issues there. And then lastly, just to, to quickly wrap on, the, on this issue, there's another element to the policy, which is it's all about employment. We want to ensure that there's more economic activity in Canada. And that speaks to the point Jay made, that the reality is we've seen record amounts of film and TV investment and production in Canada. Much of it is not traditional or treated as traditional Canadian content. But if the goal is employment, the goal is to try to ensure that Canada is the home for a lot of film and TV productions, it's succeeding there. Now, all this is to say we've got a number of different policy objectives. We're not always, the policy itself is not always doing a good job of meeting those objectives. And it does seem to me that one of the things that we ought to be doing is sitting down and saying, okay, you know, what are the core objectives? How do we ensure we've got a policy that's effective in that regard? How do we bring in a Netflix into our system? And at the same time, deal with this question of, well, if Netflix can't create any sort of Canadian content, how can they be viewed as a full participant in that Canadian system? I don't think they can. And I think that real, well, will ultimately require some real changes to the approach that we've got. Yeah, it's very clearly uh, outdated when you're speaking like that. And I think a lot of Canadians, when they're told that these productions are not considered to be Canadian, are quite flabbergasted. Um, and so the argument that the government's making here seems to be we need more Canadian content, but a lot of what we would consider to be Canadian content isn't considered as such. And if the rules were loosened a little bit, you would end up seeing that a lot more is actually Canadian content. So just for our um, listeners, just to emphasize, so discoverability as a term uh, is basically the ease with which you're going to see something online. So when we talk about the government trying to push Canadian content up to the top of what you're going to see in your news feed or your streaming feed, uh, that's discoverability. That's making something more discoverable. Um, and so that's really what the core term is. So let me just jump in on that because I want to make sure that I'm understanding this correctly. And I think this is a very important point. If the government or if bureaucrats are going to prioritize one thing, they must be automatically deprioritizing something else. Is that one of the concerns here? Absolutely. That's that is. The, yeah. Sorry, go, sorry, ahead, go ahead, Dr. Geist. Yeah, no, I was going to say yeah, that is absolutely one of the concerns, especially when you start thinking of Canadian content outside the country. And so, you know, this, this requires a, a bit of thinking about how companies like YouTube make choices when it comes to some of the algorithms that they have and what gets displayed. Now, those companies' incentives are quite clearly to ensure that users get more content that they're interested in. They try to basically determine that based on what you've viewed in the past. We all know that because if we click uh, on a video that is different from the kinds of videos we typically watch, suddenly it starts appearing, at least in our in our in our recommendation feeds uh, for a period of time, just because YouTube said, well, if you're interested in that prior one, you'll be interested in some other ones. Now, the problem with trying to import the traditional concept of discoverability into this world, especially for Canadian creators, you know, has both a, a domestic 
uh, position or domestic issue, but also even more international. Domestically, the question becomes, how do you even identify what counts as Canadian, since many of these creators don't tick the right boxes for Canadian content? But even if we were to overcome that issue and decide, okay, we are, we can identify this, this CanCon, the problem with showing people videos that or other kinds of content that they are unlikely to really like, it's there not because their habits suggest that it's something they're interested in, but rather because... The policy says that you've got to promote Canadian content as as part of operating in Canada is that if people, when presented with those videos, don't click on them or they don't watch them to completion, they just watch a little bit, say, that's not something that I'm, I'm interested in. And it's more likely that they're going to do that, that they're not going to click or not going to watch because it's not the content that the company knows they're most likely to be interested in. It's there, at least in part, because of a regulatory requirement. The problem here is that that sends a signal to YouTube or TikTok mm-hmm. or whomever that this is not content people like or are likely to click on. Because the algorithm picks up not just on what you click on, but also content that you're presented with that you choose not to. And so if this becomes the kind of content that gets regularly presented to people that they don't click on, it'll continue to be presented in Canada, presumably because of some of these discoverability rules. But once you get outside the country, the message is this isn't great content. People, when presented with it, don't click on it. And so that actually will have the effect of demoting or at least relegating this content uh, down down the chain, so to speak, when it when it comes to how much it appears globally. And especially for Canadian creators, many of them will tell you that 90% or more of their views of their revenue come from outside of the country. And so you're essentially trading some increased exposure in Canada for far less exposure globally. That's a bad trade for many of these digital first creators. Absolutely. And Dr. Geist, you actually basically summarized our second case study here. Uh, We had said uh, in the report uh, that there's a a gentleman living in Thunder Bay. Uh, He makes some podcasts about canoes. He wants to try to promote it online. He's seeing major uptick in viewership. Uh, An American company decides they might want to sponsor it. But then, of course, it becomes subject to all these rules that Dr. Geist just talked about. Uh, And if it all of a sudden becomes regulated, it could be Overpromoted in Canada, you have lower click counts. And then around the world, the stuff that was previously doing well just doesn't do well. And that's because it's being pushed on Canadians who don't actually want to watch it. And so then you have YouTube or whatever other companies are going to decide, well, this isn't very desirable content. So then you have Canadian content, the Canadian content that actually does worse around the world. And as Dr. Guy said, it's not a good trade off. So uh, let's get to our third case study here. So the third case study is very interesting. We have a gentleman, we call him Jamal uh, in the the report here, big soccer fan or football, as many people would say in other areas. uh, And he's subscribing to all these different streaming things online. Um, But Bill C-11 would force streaming providers uh, to potentially adhere to very cumbersome new regulations, contribution requirements, They could be more intense than they are in virtually any other country. But the risk you have here is that these streamers decide Canada is just not worth it. There's too many rules, too many hoops for us to jump through. Let's just block the Canadian market altogether. Dr. Geist, are you able to speak to a concern uh, such as that, that certain providers might just block uh, Canada altogether because they don't want to have to deal with all this regulation? Sure, I'd be happy to. And I guess I'd start by noting, I don't know that anybody's would 
would make the argument that the largest of the services, the Netflix or Disney's are about to leave the country. Right. I don't think they are. Uh, they've made big investments in this country and they're quite clearly uh, generating revenues and such. They're, they're very likely to stick around. The problem here is that we don't know what kind of thresholds might be established when it comes to this legislation to know which kind of services are included or excluded. At the moment, everybody is included. Now, the government has said that's not their intent. Uh, I actually engaged in a bit of a Twitter debate with one of the policy officials yeah. within the government recently. They insisted that this would only apply to the largest services with hundreds of thousands of subscribers. Reality is that that's not what the legislation says right now. It's possible that the CRTC could establish that as its standard, but we don't know. And it's going to take a very long time before we get to the point where we do know. For many of the smaller, more niche services that may have you know, very active following in Canada, but a smaller number of subscribers and smaller revenue, they may find themselves with the, the tough choice of deciding whether or not it pays to continue to remain in the Canadian market. So Canada might be one of you know 100 different markets that they operate in. It's one that the costs of doing business due to some of these regulatory requirements become more significant. And they may take a look at it and they may say, well, either we want to ensure that we're below whatever threshold gets established, in which case they continue to operate, but they may increase prices because they're going to artificially keep the number of subscribers they have low to ensure that they remain within the threshold. So those that remain will pay more as the company seeks to increase the amount of revenue that it has, or they may simply decide that Canada's just not worth the trouble, that the number of subscribers they have isn't, isn't worth uh, associated costs from a regulatory perspective, in which case perhaps they license the content to existing services or Canadians simply don't have that choice anymore. Either way, it does seem to me that there is a real risk that we could get services that a lot of Canadians do rely upon, especially in multicultural communities where they want to stay in touch with uh, community, other communities around the world and, and are actively seeking out this kind of content, they may find that those services either are costlier in Canada due to some of the regulatory costs associated with operating here or the thresholds that get established, or they may find that those services begin to block Canada altogether. Now, this is, of course, not unheard of. We have services already that block Canada. Hulu is a good example, very well-known large U.S. service that blocks the Canadian market. So it's technically capable. The capabilities are quite clearly there to block. Uh, and this legislation does run the risk of creating incentives for some of these companies, or at least a framework for some of these companies to say, you know, Canada has become too costly. It's not worth the trouble. And so we get less choice as a result of, of this legislation, not more. Right. And Dr. Geis uh, makes, makes a point about the, the Twitter spat. Um, you know, one of the things the government is trying to tell us is, you know, take the package now. We're going to have regulations that will narrow the scope in the future, but we're only going to tell it to you once it's passed into law and signed by the governor general. And of course, that's not acceptable. We need to see every piece of the regulatory guidelines potential regulatory guidelines before it gets into law, not after. As we've said before, as I've said before, that's absolutely backward governance. It's like trying to sell someone a used car without actually letting somebody into the used car to inspect anything there or to look at the mileage or anything like that. So that's a very important point. Um, so the last one, the last case study, this was a, we're suggesting a podcast on separatism. So this is a very hypothetical one. Uh, so, Basically, what we suggested that there's a couple of people in Quebec that are making a, 
a podcast on the history of separatism. So for right now, this would be considered Canadian content produced in Canada. Obviously, it's a Canadian topic, et cetera, et cetera. But Minister Mendicino has come out and, and he's this is public safety minister, has suggested that in the future, we might have to increase regulations to promote things like social cohesion. He uses these words. Or the government might come up with other reasons why it might want to filter or prioritize what we see online. So right now, this podcast would potentially be considered Canadian or, or should be considered Canadian. But down the line, who knows? And this just really leaves open the question of if there's content that the government doesn't really consider to be Canadian, in this case, it's you know criticizing the existence of Canada in some ways, this is potentially down the line, something that could be touched on. Again, it's not in the current bill. Right now, they're focusing on the Canadian narrative, but they're building this machine here where the, the CRTC, through new government powers, can filter what we see, meaning they push what, what they want us to see and inherently, as Dr. Guy said, demote what other things we do see. Uh, and it is possible that the government could use that in the future uh, for other reasons. So uh, that wraps up the four uh, case studies that we were that we were engaging in. Uh, and I guess I can throw it back over to Franco to uh, have some more questions there. Yeah. So I do have a few more questions. The next one is about process. Um, look, it seems to me that with previously Bill C-10 and now Bill C-11, that the government is really trying to ram this through Parliament, right? That's at least what it looks like to me as, as an observer from the outside. So, um, Professor Geis, a bit of a process question for you, but do you share these concerns that there really hasn't been proper consideration, perhaps proper consultation on this whole process? I think there's certainly been some problems with it, most notably towards the end of the Heritage Committee study in particular, I think is where uh, there was real problems. I mean, listen, this time, unlike the, the last bill where there was really virtually no serious hearings in terms of trying to bring in different perspectives, uh, this time there was very condensed in terms of the time allocated towards it, but there was at least a diversity of views and uh, both myself and Jay had both had a chance to appear before the committee. Uh, I, I will say though that one of, the, one of the concerns I think a lot of people have is what took place after the witnesses. And so that's typically known as a clause by clause process where the committee will go through each clause in the bill. There's the opportunity to raise potential amendments, to debate it, to ask questions of department officials so that you understand the implications of these proposals. That can be sometimes a bit of a lengthy process, but that's really where after all the witnesses have had their say and there's been the submissions, that's really you're really working towards trying to make this bill a better bill. And the approach that the government had was they they cut off the, the witness debate and said, we need to move directly to clause by clause. I mean, you can make the case that it was time to move on to that, to, to clause by clause, I think. But once they got to clause by clause, there was no real deadline. There was no reason not to engage in a fulsome process reviewing these clauses. And what we ended up with instead was one day allocated towards it. And under the motion that was adopted by the House of Commons, promoted by the government, was they said, listen, you get this one day. If you haven't completed clause by clause by 9 p.m., at that point in time, there's no more debate. You simply say, what is the amendment? 
just by number, no details, no opportunity even to read the amendment and you vote. That's it. No debate, no discussion, no, no even public disclosure about what they were voting on. And they did that on over 100 potential amendments as they raced this through to get it passed in the House of Commons. Now, the bills at the Senate, there is an opportunity in the fall, I think, for the Senate to conduct you know, I think serious hearings and to essentially take a closer look even at at some of the amendments that were made, as well as those that that were not, uh, and perhaps make some further changes to the legislation. So there's still an opportunity. But that House process, I think, was really deeply disturbing. As I say, there was no there was no deadline here. This was simply an attempt that seemed like to get this through the House before the summer. And lo and behold, soon afterwards, once we got to the Senate, we had acknowledgments from the head of the CRT chair of the CRTC that, you know, concerns around algorithmic regulation actually uh, were more legitimate than the government had suggested. We had the CRTC issuing a decision involving Radio Canada, which does raise the specter of content regulation. And so suddenly, the, the fact that we moved so quickly when there we started to see almost immediately uh, developments that should be factored into considering how this legislation turns out, I think ultimately leaves a pretty bad taste. And, you know, the Senate is still positioned to try to address some of those issues. But, you know, the, the, the way that it ended, particularly in clause by clause, was, I think, deeply troubling. Absolutely. It, it was deeply troubling. And I was uh, right there near the end of the Heritage Committee uh, testimony where I was able to give uh, some testimony, but before any of the questions, the, the Liberal MPs and then the NDP as well uh, tried to just end the hearing. And it was basically an hour, hour and a half of absolute chaos. Uh, nothing was accomplished. And myself and the other three witnesses were not able to answer fully any kind of questions, uh, which is what the process is supposed to be. And it just seemed, as Dr. Geis said, that they were trying to rush it through. Now, one of the things I mentioned at the committee uh, was user-generated content. Uh, and so this, this is a controversial issue because user-generated content, as we've said, uh, is what individuals like you or me post online. Uh, post on YouTube or on TikTok. And there's a real concern about that potentially being regulated. The government has said it won't be, uh, but the head of the CRTC says it will be. And so we actually have a clip that we're going to play of the head of the CRTC saying, yes, user-generated content is on the table. 4.2 allows the CRTC to prescribe by regulation user uploaded content subject to very explicit criteria that is also in the act so there you have it uh ian scott saying exactly that user generated content it will be on the table and so the government suggesting that it won't be regulated that's that's certainly not the case uh, so I talked a little about my uh, committee experience, the chaos uh, that we had there. So, Franco, I think I'll hand it back to you uh, for some final thoughts. Yeah, well, I just have one more question for both of you each. Um, look, maybe I'm a little bit more skeptical about government powers than the average Joe. Um, but to me, there seems to be a slippery slope here. So, Professor Geis, I'd like to know what you think. What precedent, if any, does this give government for the future? And um, also, are there any other bills that may exacerbate the issue of online censorship? Yeah, there's a lot there. Listen, I, 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 I think that 
I think there's because I have concerns with what the government had to say. I, I mean, respectfully, Jay, I don't think it's just a liberal and uh, NDP issue at committee. Uh, frankly, the conservatives were engaged in some of the same activities. And so were the block. The reality is that I thought that once we took a look at once we saw what took place at the Senate, even though it was only over the course of a couple of days, we actually saw what what good committees could actually function like, where they actually did listen to questions, ask real questions and not engage in all sorts of posturing, which I think took place really, frankly, from just about all just about all the MPs on all yeah. the side, which uh, was unfortunate. I think, though, that, you know, you asked the question about how does this play in more broadly? And and this is part of a, a broader legislative initiative from the government. This C-11 is really just the first piece of a larger um, larger plan that includes Bill C-18, which is legislation that deals with uh, the media and which I think raises some additional concerns around um, links and access to information online and uh, the approach that the government has with mandated payments effectively for linking or even inclusion in search indexes by some of the large internet platforms. I mean, no, no, nobody's feeling bad for the financial position of those large platforms, but establishing a precedent that there that links are compensable or that there's there are there's compensation even for inclusion in a search index, I think, raises some serious longer term concerns. And then there's the 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 issue around online harms or the government is now calling online safety. They put out a consultation that generated a lot of criticism. They said they were going to go back to the drawing board, conducted a, had an expert panel panel, take a look at some of those issues. We'll wait to see where where the government lands with new legislation. But, you know, quite clearly, it's a potentially very divisive issue that will raise many speech related issues. And, and listen, I, I you know, when I, when I appeared before the Senate, my view was that this particular legislation has less implications for what I can say. I don't believe that this legislation stops anybody from saying anything they want, but it definitely has implications for the way I can be heard. And uh, Mm -hmm. we look at other legislation, it can have some of that same kind of effect and even potentially get into uh, the ability for people to speak, especially if we look at some of the recent CRTC decisions, the most recent one involving Radio Canada, which started to implicate some of those questions around the regulator making decisions, not just about how things get promoted, but how what things get broadcast or made available as well. Uh, Jay, I'd be interested to hear your if you have any long term concerns there. I do. And I think Dr. Geist uh, outlined a number of them. And, you know, the core of it is, as we said, not just being able to talk, but to be heard. And so that's the really concerning issue. And if the government or government regulators are able to influence whether we can be heard or the degree to which we can be heard, that's a very dangerous thing, I think, uh, in a democracy. I would also say that the government's giving a heck of a lot of powers to the CRTC through this, which is the broadcasting regulator through this bill. Uh, They're intending to give a lot of power over to them, again, to give the CRTC the power. Uh, right now, just based on Canadianness, but to give them the power to promote certain content, which inherently demotes others. And so what I'm concerned about long term is it could be this government, it could be another government, it could be next year, it could be in 10 years. But if you're giving the power to the CRTC to be able to order what we see, uh, there's a real concern that it could be expanded to other areas and not just kept to quote unquote Canadian content. So that's a huge concern for me going forward. But I think the biggest point is absolutely, it's not just a question of being able to talk, it's a question of being able to be heard. And that is the clear concern. 
Well, you know what? I think um, we could spend about a week diving into the details of this piece of legislation and other uh, issues of online censorship, but let's leave it there. And on that note, Dr. Geis, I just want to say thank you so much for joining the podcast and sharing your expertise with us. Um, And you know what? Let's talk to our supporters now because we're all about taking action. We need our CTF supporters to take some action. The bill is in the Senate. From what I'm hearing, the talk around town here in Ottawa is that um, this piece of legislation could be passed sometime in the fall. So we don't have too much time, but there is still time for action. And there's a few things that you can do. So we have an online petition that you can sign, uh, stand with your fellow taxpayers against online censorship. Now, after you sign that petition, of course, share this podcast with your friends and family so more people kind of understand the nuances and the dangers of this piece of legislation. And hey, while you're at it, uh, type up that email, uh, give your MP an earful. Hi, I'm Scott Hennig, President of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. If you've got another minute, I'd like to ask you to think about the one person you know that would really enjoy listening to this podcast. Do us a favor and do them a favor and send them a quick note to let them know about it. At the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we believe there is power in numbers. That's why we've worked so hard to build an army of taxpayers who are ready to push back. And we did it because people like you shared our work with that one person that they knew would really appreciate taking part. Thanks for listening, and thanks for doing your part to make Canada a better place.